Welcome to the Catholic Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and today I'm going to be playing a video, or well, a recording of an interview uh, that I did as a video with uh, John Fisher 2.0, and I'm going to link the interview and his YouTube channel in the uh, show notes. Um, also, I want to let you know, the uh, I, I got a request from a listener for me to address the Council for Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican. Uh, so I'm looking into that a little bit when I have chan- when I have time, and this is what I'm going to plan on uh, discussing for uh, the coming week's video. So that'll be, you know, the week of the 7th, so probably sometime around the 11th or 12th is when that'll go out. So thanks for listening, and here's my interview with John Fisher 2.0. All right. It is Friday, my dudes. Welcome to another episode of the Original Win Podcast. This is John Fisher 2.0. And joining me today is Dr. Russell. Although for today's podcast, we're just going to go with Levi because I'm not one of his students. So uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, distributivism, which many would argue would be uh, the best economic philosophy for any Catholic believer. Um, But for those of us who might not be familiar with economics, this is going to be a video directed mostly to getting an idea of what uh, distributivism is, and of course, getting an idea of how it compares to what most other economists believe and hold to, especially, you know, the policy wonks we see all over Facebook and Twitter. So um, out of curiosity, uh, uh, Levi, how did you get to be a distributivist? Like as a Catholic, was this something you just walked into um, through university and then just held on to it? Or was it something you adapted as you kind of went through? Yeah. So initially uh, when I was thinking about going to graduate school and I, uh, I started reading a lot of the Austrian economic stuff and this was back in, this was back in the tea party days. Uh, This was like 2008, uh, that time frame, and so I finished undergrad during the Great Recession, mm-hmm. which obviously is not a great thing for a finance major. Um, and so, rather than go sell stocks to people who just lost all their money, I uh, I decided to go to graduate school and and try out um, economics, and kind of inspired by that Austrian stuff. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I I end up in an agricultural economics program at Kansas State University. That's my that's where I got my PhD, and um, so oh, basically I I was sort of an anarcho capitalist. And to set this all up, I mean I I converted to Catholicism in 2007 when I was a sophomore at Kansas State, um, and so you know this. I kind of had a lot of ideological upheaval in my life and over that time period. And um, so then I kind of stabilized into this kind of capitalist mindset for Mm -hmm. several years. I started my career uh, as a professor and um, went to a couple of universities around the country. And then uh, now I'm kind of back home in Kansas. And uh, 
so now I'm, I'm, I'm just teaching economics now. I'm not really doing the ag thing as much anymore. And, um, and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, we, I, I move home 2018 and <clears throat> it just keeps nagging at me. And it had been nagging at me since probably 2016 or so that, you know, all of this capitalist stuff doesn't really line up that well with the faith. You know, it doesn't, there's like, there's times where there's just this tension and it's like, I, I, I started to get the idea that, you know, I've got to pick one. And I had read about, I had read, you know, some Chesterton stuff. I'd read about Belloc and um, all that stuff when I was converting in like 2005, 2006, 2007. Um, and so I understood distributism. I had a friend who uh, is, is in the finance world and he was a huge fan of distributism, a huge fan of Chesterton, you know, and he's trying to, you know, he's trying to make the case to me, but, you know, there's just so many voices out there. Uh, you know, like, I mean, Tom Woods is a good example. Now, heck, we've got uh, what Trent Horn, you know, there's just these guys that are just like trying to shoehorn, uh, you know, uh, well, sort of trying to shoehorn the faith into capitalism. It's it's a weird thing. Uh, <clears throat> and so I start reading, um, you know, things that, mm. you know, sort of critiques of the the anarcho-capitalist or, or capitalist position or whatever. Um, and And I start kind of understanding that, you know, the, the, the critiques, the other direction. So the, the complaints that I had read over the years um, by the capitalist types about distributism and that kind of thing, you know, they were, it, it was, it, it was kind of weird how they were just, uh, they were very surface level. And, and, and in a lot of cases they had to do with the specific things that certain thinkers said, you know, so like they would have this problem with something Chesterton said. Or they have a problem with, you know, John Madai, uh, who's a, a newer guy, uh, still, uh, he's a, I don't know, he teaches like business or something like that at, at a, 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 a private Catholic school. Uh, but he's, you know, he's a, he's a well-known writer in the distributist, you know, Catholic um, econ world. And so, you know, I start looking at these critiques and I'm thinking, you know, well, this, okay, yeah, okay. So, yeah, Chesterton might have said them some things that weren't perfect or that, made sense in 1915 or whatever, or 1930, but don't make as much sense now. Well, okay. But I mean, that's, that's just like anything. I mean, that's just like anything in economics, right? Economics and, and, and you know, the way I think of it, you know, I'm, um, I have a PhD in economics. Economics is a science. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a way of, it's a, it's a set of tools. It's a discipline, right? That's what mm -hmm. the, a lot of the Chicago guys used to call it. It's a discipline. It's a set of, it's a set of, um, uh, uh, instruments, a set of tools to try to understand, you know, certain components of uh, uh, our social lives. And so, um, you know, in that sense, it doesn't, it doesn't claim to have knowledge about everything. Um, and, you know, there are, there are certainly times when particular statements are going to be more relevant than others. I mean, uh, this makes sense, you know. Um, just it, as where, a, oh, so just to interrupt, um, for give, to give an example, um, sure. everyone will Someone might point out that, oh, Chesterton got this wrong. Uh, some will say Heller Belloc got that wrong at the time. But to be fair, economic knowledge at that time was weak across the board, was it not? I mean, no one predicted the the Great Recession that was about to take place in the 20s. Yeah, I mean, so it, I think I think that w what's even what's even worse is that really, I, I don't think we can complain so much like uh, a capitalist couldn't really complain about the things that, uh, you know, people who call themselves distributists today say um, to, on the economics, right? So, 
in some cases, maybe like, I mean, the, you know, the Austrian school people, which is a tiny minority in, in, you know, in, in the part of economics that's academic and, 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 you know, mainstream finance and stuff like that. But in the online world, it's a, of course, it's a big thing. Uh, so, you know, they might have some quibbles with methods and all of that kind of stuff, but that's not really what it's about. The complaints are really about the underpinnings, the, the morality of it, mm-hmm. the, it's not about, you know, forecasting recessions and, uh, you know, what, what your, um, you know, what your model of the macro economy or, you know, what you think about, um, uh, you know, sort of fundamental assumptions of economics, uh, uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's more about these moral foundations. And, you know, for me, it's more about, you know, whether you're going to put the, the, the church's definition of the common good or, or some, you know, even if you're not a Catholic, right, some other definition of the common good above just whatever happens in the, the, the free market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, I feel, is the actual difference. And this is where, to me, we, you know, maybe the term distributism is useful. Maybe it's not. Um, I, I don't actually call myself that. Um, to me, <clears throat> distributism made a ton of sense in its time. It was the, the whole world was, you know, obsessed with socialism and everybody, you know, the whole, the progressive era, mm-hmm. you know, all of that stuff was going that direction. And these guys had to, you know, Chesterton and Belloc had to try to talk to those people in their language. And so you'll get capitalist mm-hmm. folks that are like, Oh, Chesterton said this, and that sounds like socialism. And it's like, well, okay, first of all, you don't know what socialism is. And second mm-hmm. of all, uh, you know, just because Chesterton is saying things to be friendly to those people doesn't mean that, you know, he's he's trying to lay out the philosophy, right? Uh, we we don't um you know, we have to we have to play to an audience. I mean, this is a, I mean, I teach, so you know, I have to I have to speak in ways that the people I'm talking to are gonna understand. And, and, you know, otherwise I'm just, uh, who am I talking to? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a delicate thing. And, and I, I think it's unfortunate that the people who criticize, uh, you know, these, these attempts to implement Catholic social teaching using the sort of policy to uh, policy tools and intuition of economics, uh, the people who criticize that, um, by only reading Chesterton or only reading, you know, John Madai or a few other people. Um, I think it's very unfortunate. And one of the challenges we have right now in my mind is that we are, um, we are woefully short on uh, people who understand technical economics um, that are interested in distributism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I think that's, that's something that I'm trying to, uh, you know, the, 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 the Lee nine Institute is trying to handle and, and I'm, I'm a part of that process. Uh, are part of that group um, as a fellow, uh, trying to uh, help put out information that um, you know that's economically sound from a sort of economic technical, or excuse me, from an academic or technical perspective, um, and yet uh, also based on the fundamentals of uh, Catholic social teaching. Right. Now let's go over maybe some terms that uh, our audience. Uh, could uh, get a hold of before going on to distributism. So you said you spent a lot of your time initially as what's called an Austrian. Now, um, for those of you who don't know, um, the people on the internet who tell you to take economics 101, those are those tend to be the Austrians. Um, but <laughs> yeah. but uh, all jokes aside, Austrian economics, from what I understand, is a form of, Aust- of economics started by Ludwig von Mises. It was taken by its successors, most mainly in the United States, Mary Rothbard. And these people tend to 
uh, value approaching economics uh, from a point of view of um, creating a priori arguments, um, starting off with those kind of like starting off with geometry and then building up these models from there just to get uh, tendencies in human behavior. Uh, it, would that be an apt way of describing it? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're trying to be, uh, you know, Mises was a huge fan of Immanuel Kant and I'm not a philosopher. I don't really know uh, hardly anything about that stuff, but I do know that like there was this whole idea of, of trying to use the synthetic a priori, right? Mm -hmm. That, that economics is a, um, it, it's, it's, it's a field of study that examines laws, right? Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> what's, what's ironic is that the, the Austrian folks complain about the, uh, the, the, you know, they say that mainstream economics today is sort of like trying to be physicists for people, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to implement, you know, these physics models and based on calculus and stuff like this. But I, I feel like what's the difference? Because I mean, the, the Austrians are trying to come up with, you know, laws of mm -hmm. economics. Well, if there is a law of economics, why wouldn't I use calculus? Right. Whereas, for me, I think that um, much more important and, and my actual published work and, and the stuff that has moved my career along has been uh, empirical. And so, I mean, I, I use statistics and, and I think there's there's certain value in that. There's there's certainly, you know, the Austrians are right that there are limitations on the data. That's another big complaint that they have is that, you know, the, the data that we try to examine in these models and, and sort of, uh, you know, because the models themselves are, are, uh, you know, deductive in a sense, right? The mainstream mathematical models are deductive in a sense, but they do rely on uh, on data to sort of, you know, prove them or whatever, right. um, which again, sounds very, you know, physics driven or whatever. But um, there's, th they have good points. I think there's, there's some Austrians, I think, who are, uh, who make a good point that, you know, we can use methods that, that seem more like, um, the, the maybe archaeologists or something, right? We're we're just trying to uh, we're trying to understand how someone lived their life, right? We're trying to uh, you know use these methods where we're digging into like this one person, this one case study, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so they're they're not always, I think, on the wrong track with with the economic, the technical economics, but certainly this whole idea of there being laws of economics, um, it just it that is you know whether that's actually true or not, okay is the, the where that goes really wrong is it becomes the replacement for um, a coherent ethical and moral framework right that, that that's the biggest problem i think they have and another issue uh, to bring up is sometimes having um a, a useful fiction even if it's not grounded in reality is still helpful for example if you look at older models of the universe uh, uh we had um geocentric models of the universe that still were helpful enough where navigators could guide their way from Europe to North America. Empirically, that was a good model. Of course, it was superseded with better models that could do just that, but the point remained, it was still helpful. Uh, likewise, I don't see an issue with economic uh, economists who are using something that will break down eventually or will be superseded, but is still helpful, at least in some capacity. Um, and one more question. Would you say that? Um, well, can I can I comment on that real oh, quick? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there, 
there are a lot of problems with these analogies, I think, between, uh, you know, economic models and like you're saying, you know, maybe uh, star maps or, right. uh, you know, whatever. Um, these, uh, and, and I think the reason for that, I think, again, you know, the Austrians have some of this right. There's a, if, if people want to read more on this, read the stuff that Arnold Kling is writing about the, uh, about, um, uh, the econ economic methods and and this whole idea of uh, of, of theoretical models and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, I <clears throat> I mean, it's very interesting. We even have people like Brian Kaplan, who's very important or very um, popular online. Uh, you know, he's Princeton trained. He's a he's a mainstream guy. He's done a lot of stuff in behavioral economics. Um, but he, he he had a huge fight with uh, Paul Krugman years ago about mathematics and, and, you know, the, the importance of mathematics as a mathematical model. Right. Um, and he just doesn't think that there is, uh, much value. And if you read his, you know, very high level published work, um, he doesn't use a lot of that stuff. Um, and, and to me, you know, when we're building, if I'm going to build a statistical model, well, I'm, I'm just as happy to motivate that with, uh, you know, the, the sort of basic economic logic, as I am spending, you know, 30 pages doing a bunch of math. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't, me personally, I don't, I, I think a lot of that is just, um, it, 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 it's not, it's not terribly useful. And, and mm -hmm. as, as Brian Kaplan points out that the return on investment for the stuff is just, I mean, you know, you, you can, you can explain things and you can, you know, maybe they've made some discoveries or whatever. Right. But again, I think most of the stuff is just going through 20 pages of math to prove that water runs downhill. So. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. And by the way, uh, one of the, one of the best works I've ever read in terms of um, economics and education is his, uh, the myth of education. It's a fantastic book. Um, I recommend it. Um, in fact, I actually did a presentation on why we should ban or why school, my um, university should uh, cease being funded by uh, our government. And I managed to get an A minus from my admittedly Marxist professor. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he basically said, okay, I disagree with you, but this is actually right. very well presented. So uh, thank you, Brian Kaplan, for that A minus. Now, <laughs> now let's go on to distributivism itself. So sure. what would you say binds, so what would you say binds people in the distributivist school um, in the sense of, at what point would somebody be out of the camp? Like, at what point would, um, what would I have to say? Like, uh, uh, for example, uh, I know I couldn't sponsor usury uh, and be a distributivist, I don't think. But what would even that mean? Like, what would it mean to? Yeah, so sort of like, uh, how do you put yourself out of the tribe or whatever? What's yeah, the, exactly. What's the unforgivable sin? Yeah, uh, you know, that's something I haven't thought much about because I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not someone who thinks that I should be gatekeeping that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm just more interested in the argument. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. Okay. People, you know, we, we want to, we want to be taxonomists, right? We want to, we want to be able to categorize right. um, our views, but um, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, there when, well, okay. D just very straightforwardly, what what puts people outside of it is when they get they get committed to to liberal ideas, mm -hmm. um, and you see this on the left and the right. Okay, I'm I'm a big fan of just basically saying, uh, you know, everybody who disagrees with me is a liberal, uh, 
and they're just whether they're whether they're the left or the white uh, right wing flavor of that um because look i mean even all this this talk about socialism blah 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 we have the you know we have the oh what are they the tradinistas and all this stuff it's just this is liberalism right this is uh you know this is a product of of the protestant revolution this is a product of the french revolution um the, this is not um this is not illiberal right i mean it's silly um it's a liberal in a certain very narrow context where the only thing you know about is you know the the 19th and the 20th centuries and you don't think about anything else uh okay yeah you can sort of make that case but i just i just feel like that's it's ridiculous and so i think that's where where you go wrong now on the specific uh, you know, maybe when you're talking about policies or something like that, or you're talking about, uh, you know, fundamentals like uh, uh, usury. So I'm, I'm a big fan of saying that, um, that w- what's more important is the, the ethical and moral foundations. Okay. And so when you're, um, when, when, when you're in a place where, um, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, categorize this stuff. It's not about the policy tools themselves, right? So I, I had an episode of my podcast, Catholic Economics Podcast, recently where I I had somebody who asked me uh, to talk about, you know, the Jesus is a socialist thing. And, uh, you know, the, I think the, the thing that, uh, that to me makes it very clear that he obviously would never have been, I mean, other than just the chronology of it, right? Um you know, people rely on the idea that a certain set of policies is is uh, uh, is maybe a better or worse way of implementing what Christ would have wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's to me, it's not about that. It's about the uh, the underlying ideology, right? Socialism is a is a is a liberal uh, worldview, mm-hmm. and so it's not a set of policies, right? And so, and and we've got people trying to, you know, what do they call it? Uh, they call it social democracy, right? Or democratic socialism. Right, well, okay, well, to the extent that that's not just, you know, a, a light flavor of socialism as an ideology, it's just a set of policy proposals. Right. And and so, I mean, I can, I can take some and I can leave others. And, you know, just because someone, um, you know, who wants, uh, who, who wants to excuse uh, capitalism calls me a socialist for that. I mean, it's just laugh it off. It's ridiculous. You know, it's just a set of policy proposals. It doesn't give me, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I have a beard, but I'm not Karl Marx, you know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, I don't believe <laughs> as a distributivist, you would uh, push for the abolishment of private property. Uh, you wouldn't, put, you wouldn't want a classless society. Uh, you're not somebody who's looking to, um, to make the means of production available only through some kind of central planner or right. a democratic body. It's, from what I understand, most distributivists at least marketed their idea on the idea of that uh, the means of production should be uh, as far dispersed for everybody and everyone should be more of an entrepreneur rather and more in control of their labor and of course their capital. Um, yeah. Well, so I, th- I think I think there's some challenges with with again sort of relying on this term distributism, mm-hmm. and then because I, 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 I think the problem is that that lead that that puts us in this position where we only listen to Chesterton and Belloc, and it's just right. reiterating their stuff over and over and over and over and over. And it's like, look, you know, they were at the the tail end of you know the Industrial Revolution, and the, the entire world was completely different than it is now. 
right? I mean, you probably still had, I don't know, what, 60, 70% of people in the U.S. were farmers back then. Right. I mean, that's a totally different life than we have now. But I think if, if you're going to, I guess maybe the better way to, uh, instead of trying to sort of gatekeep and say who isn't in this camp, mm-hmm. I think the better way would just be to sort of define it and, and say, you know, here's a few bedrock principles that, um, you know, have to be respected. Right. Um, and so the, the first and foremost thing that I think uh, makes it very clear who's on the side of uh, sort of the church's, um, you know, the, ter- the church's social vision Mm-hmm. versus someone who isn't mm-hmm. is the family. Right. Um, the founding document of Catholic social teaching was Rerum Novarum written by Pope Leo the 13th. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he starts off that document. Hey, there we go. There we are. Awesome. Collection of- there we go. Yeah. I like it. He, he starts that, that, um, that particular encyclical letter off talking about the family. I mean, the first whole section of it is just, it's talking about, a man and his wages and his family, right? right. Um, and and how that uh, how fundamental that is to society, right? So so here's where you get deviations, right? You get the uh, uh, sort of capitalist or right wing individualists, right, who say, well, you know, uh, you know, our economic method is going to take the individual as the the basic unit of analysis, right? Right. Um, or you know, they'll they'll sort of couch it in like. Uh, uh, constitutional founding rhetoric, right? Uh, but even on the left, I think um, you, they might pander to this family thing more. But then when you, you you start seeing cracks in the policy stuff that they advocate for, or you see them kind of grabbing on to the critical theory stuff um, a lot more than anybody who is genuinely in favor of what the church calls the family, right, right. Um, would be talking about. And not to get into specifics on that, but, um, you know, I, I think a great example is um, you have this thing called the Family Fun Pack. And it's, I can't remember the guy's name, but he he sort of runs a uh, think tank off of Patreon. Um, and and it's, you know, he's, he's trying to put some policy stuff out there. And, I, you know, hey, that's fine. Um, but he... Um, he has a thing called the family fun pack. And one of the policies he likes is, uh, is, is, you know, uh, uh, lots of leave, like, like lots of paid leave for parents. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dude, okay. You think about this as an economist for five seconds, right? What <laughs> are you doing? You're reducing the cost of the two parent household, right? Right. You're making it so that both of those parents can say, you know what, I can be a, I can be a good parent. You know, I can be home when the kid is like a really little baby and then I can go to work, right? I can, I can do this paid leave thing. Hey, you know, I, I can, I can have a family. Well, hold on a second. You know, the, the church's ideal is you have a breadwinner, right? You have one mm-hmm. and you, you raise your own children. You don't pay, <laughs> you know, you don't pay, um, you know, free childcare and stuff like that to do that. Exactly. And then, and then you, you see how this implement, this actually plays out. I mean, in Canada, uh, it's horrifying. They have, there's a whole like sort of underclass of women uh, who are kind of sort of in the labor force. And what happens is, so they, they have this, they have this system where, you know, they're supposed to be pro-family policy, right? Right. And they, they, they say, okay, if, if you're, um, you know, you, you can have so much leave, right? And it's a lot, it's like I don't know, several months of leave, right? And all of this stuff. And it's, and it's all paid for. Mm-hmm. And the company is paid for by the government, I guess. And the, the company can't fire you. 
right? You can be gone for like nine months or something like that and they can't fire you. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that sounds fine. That sounds fantastic. But then when it actually plays out in reality, and this is predictable, I think, okay, well, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the guy running the business, right? Okay. I, somebody's gone now for nine months. I got to fill that spot. Right. Right. And the work has to still get done. Right. So what happens is you create this underclass of people who are trying to break into the workforce, but all they do is just fill these little nine month stints. Uh, some so a uh, little secret. I myself am a Canadian, and I myself, oh. yeah, and I myself have uh, had a dad who. Well, I do have a father. Um, basically, uh, while he was uh, running his own business, it was a local convenience store, as most Arabs do. Um, what's interesting is the man never liked hiring people. He never hired mm. one person. He contracted, yeah. not hired. He contracted right. a chef, right? Uh, just so totally he could work there. The, no need to go through all the rigmarole with the government. And he basically worked the front of it himself. Um, he he ran the full shift. Um, he managed um, the whole store. He uh, kept up with his um, contract uh, uh, contract hire. And rather than, you know, taking some time off, uh, relaxing, actually having more time with his family, he, uh, you know, was more indentured to work there because... Mm there was a very high cost to actually hiring out somebody, especially somebody who he couldn't, who already came with a high risk because yeah. when you're a small business owner and you're hiring somebody and they steal something from you mm. or yeah, it doesn't really bode well. Um, so yeah, I totally hear what you're saying and uh, the empirical evidence, okay, the anecdotal evidence does bear out, yeah. but uh, just uh, out of curiosity in terms of, you know, understanding Chesterton and Belloc's idea and playing it now, yeah, I don't think it it's a smart idea to just be like, yeah, here's like all these farmlands. Go uh, have fun yeah, with that. Right. But I think in today's uh, economy, maybe something that's more uh, that's a better analogy would probably be uh, internet access um, and a PC that's able to do um, what needs to be done for to to run a business uh, either online or basically as an assist. Right. I think there's also uh, there's also a huge uh, need. Um, in in order to support the family to protect the internet, you know, make sure um, student uh, make sure that uh, children um, and adults don't um, indulge in things like uh, pornography. Whereas now with a liberal economy, uh, we have a morality which is basically well, we really shouldn't let the government uh, be involved in that sort of thing. And even when right. it comes to so-called um, you know tratty um, anarcho-capitalists who who try to merge the philosophies, even they're like, mm. do you really want the government in charge of your <laughs> internet? Like, right. uh, like uh, how, how do you respond to that line of thinking? Like, the government is just not yeah. competent enough to handle the means of production, like a computer, uh, to protect the family. In fact, it'll make it worse. Uh, how, how would you respond to that sort of uh, objection? Yeah, so I think I think you're, you're, first of all, you're kind of tying in these two things very wisely, right? So back in the day, you know, back 100 years ago or so, you know, the, the key was, uh, what is it like uh, three acres and a cow, right? That right. was, that's the, the Chester thing, right? Right. Well, like you're saying, this is a little different these days. And then the thread that ties those two together is the idea that, um, you know, uh, again, from, from Pope Leo, Rerum Novarum, every man should, should have a wage sufficient to take care of his family, um, not in bare subsistence, but uh, sort of in line with what is normal at the time, right? Because of course, Pope Leo seeing that, 
know, things are changing, right? Things in 1890 are a whole heck of a lot different than they were in, uh, you know, 1790 even. Right. And um, of course that, that just goes crazy off the rails. Right. But um, in terms of material well-being, but, but the point is that you've got to tie that together. Right. So, mm -hmm. so the idea is that a man's wage should be sufficient. This is what Pope Leo said, right? A man's wage should be sufficient to provide for his family in sort of the normal course of things. Right. And what Chesterton talks about is that really it's good if you have uh, uh, a wage income and capital income, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the ability to be independent and, and this ties in with what Leo says, because Leo talks a lot about power. Um, and again, here we, we start to sound, you know, we get a little spider sense, start to sound left wing, right? <laughs> um, but he talks a lot about power in the sort of economic transactions between the employer and the employee, right? And I mean, there's no right. reason to doubt this, right? I mean, this is just the way the world is. And so what Chesterton's solution is, well, if you have some capital income and some wage income, then you can be independent, right? And then and it actually makes the, the labor market more efficient, right? Because then you're not making your um, employment decisions about where you're going to work and all of that um, out of desperation. And you can make those decisions more based on, you know, staying in the community that you live in, being around your family, right? Having a multi-generational sort of perspective um, rather than just rootlessly moving around wherever you can get the best deal. Um, and so, yeah, so Chesterton says, you know, we want you to have some capital income. And, and like you said, um, for a lot of people today, the way that happens is through the internet. And, um, so, uh, of course, you know, this also gets to the sort of big tech tyranny thing that, you know, we have some politicians that are, you know, trying to push some antitrust stuff, which is fantastic. I, you know, Teddy Roosevelt all the way or whatever. Right. I mean, yes, that's good. Um, we, we want, um, you know, we, we want the, these things to be recognized as uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, if they're going to be platforms, then they need to be platforms, right? They need to be, uh, uh, they don't need to be pushing people off just because, you know, they have a certain set of views. Now, at the same time, I mean, this, I think, I think Gab, to be honest with you, Gab is a fantastic example because Gab bans all pornography from their platform completely. Days right. So as long as you're, what you're saying is legal and not porn you're fine. And I'm like, you know, this is, I mean, this is as close as we get these days. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, when we're talking about, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to go down the, the art route too much, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's whenever you try to make like a Christian movie, right. It's like all the Christian movies are just bad, <laughs> but, but to have a Christian platform, eh, maybe it's not so bad. Right. I mean, Gab's doing pretty well uh, relative to what they were doing, how they were doing three weeks ago. Um, they are, uh, people are just flooding in there and we need to make sure that ISPs, uh, you know, that every piece along that, uh, channel, right. That, that, that lets those people get that, you know, capital income, even, you know, as meager as it is, it's not, you know, mm -hmm. it's not billions of dollars, but, um, they need to be able to access that. And you're right. It, look, and here's, the, here's, here's the answer to all the, the capitalist types who want to say, you don't really want the government. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Look, <laughs> I'm not. So number one, the government is what it is, right? The government has legitimate authority, right? St. Paul has told us that. Um, you know, Christ tells us that the, 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 the state has legitimate authority. And if, if we're going to take Pope Leo and Pope Pius, um, the, the ninth, Pope Pius, the 10th, Pope Pius, the 11th, seriously about this stuff, then we're going to be pushing for a, um, we're going to be pushing for a policy regime that does certain things. And, you know, 
I mean, maybe I don't like Joe Biden, right? Maybe I think he's a fake Catholic or whatever, but that doesn't mean I can't try to push him in the direction that I want him to go, right? It doesn't mean I can't make the case. It doesn't mean I can't try to build influence, right? Right. Uh, so and, what's wrong with doing that? Right. I, I see nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, even to compare Joe Biden, who is, is pretty terrible, I'm not going to lie about that. But let's see who St. Paul was talking about when he wrote about mm. authorities bearing the sword. He was talking about the Roman Empire. He was talking about Nero. And he still knew what he was talking about. He still said, okay, look, there are these natural things that uh, the Roman Emperor uh, does have authority over. Um, no one's going to deny Romans 12. We might deny the fact that he has no power to contradict the infallible magisterium. Sure. Right. But we're not going to deny that he, uh, uh, he uh, does not bear the sword in vain. Yeah. Now, now, um, something else uh, to to ask is, at what point uh, when we discuss, uh, you know, our Catholic friends who are either capitalists or socialists, at what point um, when they take up that philosophy can we say they're, um, you know, they're going against the teaching magisterium of the church? And is one doing it to a worse extent than the other? Like, can one, in some sense, be you know, a Catholic capitalist or a Catholic socialist. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable trying to fill this role, right? To me, right. My, my, my perspective on all of this is just, you know, your parish is a, mm -hmm. uh, your parish is a physical location, right? It's like a, it, it, it has boundaries, right? right? Just like a diocese does. So just do what your priest tells you or what your bishop tells you. And if, and if, and if you have a crisis of conscience, if they're telling you to do something you don't think is, is good, then don't go on the internet and cry about it to the public, right? Don't tell everybody else about how bad and evil they are. Go to them. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I hear people constantly. It's like, Oh, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to go talk to the bishop. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you are. They, they pick up the phone. They respond. They sure do. Um, and what, what am I going to do? Change my parish on my own? Yeah. Volunteer because nobody wants to volunteer. So when you step up, guess what? You can change things. So I want to get that out of the way. Um, but what I would say is that uh, in, in terms of where do we see people going the wrong way? I think let's maybe try to do this by negation. So um, for instance, so what, what I would say is you, you pick something that's very important that the popes have have consistently talked about with, with Catholic social teaching, you know, since, you know, sort of the modern age, right? Since the 1800s, right. when, when we start talking, when we start having to worry about this stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> about wages and that kind of thing. So um, what, what, what we get is uh, maybe an idea like a living wage, right? <laughs> so... Um, are there aspects of a living wage in which we're purely in the realm of like a policy scientific position, right? Where we're trying to, we're trying to just figure out what is effective at um, providing a living wage, right? Right. So we're committed to the underlying principle, right? That every man should be able to provide for his wife and his children you know, sort of in a, in a way commensurate with sort of the, the, um, you know, general society, right. And again, not just like bare subsistence, you know, and just avoiding starvation on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> now are there, so, so I think we all have to be on board with that, right. We have to be on board up to that point. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And then beyond that is where we get to have legitimate disagreements about, um, you know, what, uh, how, how we implement that, how we put that together, you know? And so I think some people can, um, maybe they can advocate for a, a $40 minimum wage or something. Right. And, and then, then we get into, uh, you know, we get into having statistical arguments, we have anecdotal arguments, or we have sort of just basic reason, um, you know, we just employ the sort of, uh, um, you know, logical tools of economics and things like that to uh, determine whether that's going to be an effective thing. So what I think what I would say without, you know, calling out a name or, or doing anything that's not my job um, as a layman, um, I would just say that there are lots of people who will not get on board with the idea that we have to have a living wage or um, that uh, usury is a sin uh, and usury equals, uh, you know, taking interest on a loan. Um, so I, I think those are the non-negotiables. And then when we get to the level of actual implementation, that's where, okay, maybe a certain thing works in Poland that doesn't work in the UK, that doesn't work in Canada, that doesn't work in Mexico, right? And we start to see differences. We start to see, we start to have to sort of take account of the, the different cultures and, um, you know, maybe the different ways of doing things. And Pope Francis has talked about this. I mean, this is, uh, this is all, this is, Fratelli Tutti is sort of shot through with this, right? He's, he's angry at big finance and their obsession with just crushing, and, and, and of course the Chinese government too, but with just crushing all of these, you know, little countries. Um, and, and, you know, when we change their culture and make them Catholic, well, that's a good thing. But if we change their culture and turn them into a bunch of bug men, well, that's not good. <laughs> you know, we don't want that. Um, so <clears throat> that's where I would say you have a problem. And right. as far as like left or right, Man, it's it's so hard. I think it's more about just the things that they they get wrong. The, the the fundamental problem is they're not putting the church first. They have an ideology that they're committed to mm-hmm. and they're not they're not laying that ideology down, right? I mean, go back to, you know, what you're learning, you know, as you're a little kid, right? You know, lay lay, lay your cares before God, right? Right. Uh, sacrifice. Right. right. We're coming up on Lent here. You know, we got a sacrifice to make. Well, I'll tell you what, sacrifice your ideology um, and put the church first and then see what comes out of that. Right. If you're interested in, you know, some certain aspect of policy, if you want to be a policy wonk, you want to go work in the government, you want to be an academic economist or whatever, you know, or a sociologist or something. Fine. You know, but don't put your ideology first. Right. Mm-hmm. Put the church first and, and, and put put the consistent teaching of uh, Catholic social teaching all the way up through till today first um, and, and not, you know, <laughs> not your, you know, your petty ideology. Of course. I mean, I have, I, I will always say, I mean, I, I was just on uh, the Trediste podcast with, uh, uh, with Thomas Hackett and, you know, we, we kind of had a little back and forth about, you know, left and right and this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always going to be, well, at least for now, I think I'm always going to be kind of more, my, my problems are, I'm always going to be more angry and more frustrated and more willing to call out left-wing people. Um, because I think, again, at that fundamental level, they just, they don't understand the family. They, they want to, they want to pawn off half their morality to, uh, you know, the, the studies programs at universities and stuff like that. 
um, much more than the right. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, I can go to, I can go to Tom Woods and be like, come on, man. Like, you know, it says right here, we got to have a living wage. Right. And, 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 and the Pope says it's legitimate for the state to do this. You know, uh, that's I'm, I'm it. Not- He's your Pope. I'm, act- I'm actually kind of curious. So what would you say to Tom Woods' argument that, okay, fine, I agree. We have to have a living wage. All I'm saying is that as an anarcho-capitalist, I think the best way to get that living wage is just to let the free market lovers work. And that's all I'm right. saying. How much? Why does it have to be the government providing that living wage? Uh, well, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be. Uh, oh, you know, okay. Pope Leo certainly gives a, a lot of leeway to... Um, other institutions. I mean, I, I, I read recently, I read this little um, speech that Pope Francis gave to a group of um, uh, cooperative folks in Italy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's praising sort of cooperative model and how it's sort of uh, it, its basic principles are built on the idea that, uh, you know, the, the people who work for the company or in the case of things like, um, uh, you know, like agricultural cooperatives. I, mean, I don't know if you have those in Canada, but you know, agricultural cooperatives where it's it's a bunch of businesses all together, right? Pooling their capital and 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 pooling their control together uh, to get these sort of bigger things done. Mm. Um, you know, he's praising that, and and these are ways that we can, without necessarily having the state directly intervene on that specific thing, uh, you know, on the living wage and mandating it and all this kind of thing. Um, that it can be done, but, but what, but what Pope Leo says, <laughs> uh, and, and you, you should check out, uh, if you're interested in this stuff, you should check out my review of, uh, Trent Horn's book in the imaginative conservative. Uh, I I'll definitely, uh, post the link, uh, in the description cool. bar. Okay. Uh, awesome. So, uh, you know, Pope Leo says, okay, but if this stuff isn't happening, you know, because of the institutions in society at the time, Mm -hmm. well, then it's a legitimate, it's important enough that it's part of the state's legitimate role and part of their authority to make it happen. Right. And one interesting thing is that um, certain uh, Catholics who take up that Austrian position, um, what, what's really interesting is at times, at least when speaking to fellow Catholics, they'll make it more of a, you know, a prudential matter. They might grant that fine within the legitimacy of the government to do this. But I just believe this other way is more efficient. But on the other hand, when you, you hear out the uh, free market arguments, they're moralistic arguments. They're, the government does not have a right to redistribute um, uh, money. So... So they, yeah, they might they might tell you that they disagree on a practical level, right? But you know, and and they might say it's more efficient. It's like, well, okay, if it's so efficient, then why the heck isn't happening? <laughs> you know, it's it's not happening. So you can't. I mean, maybe it's efficient in some fantasy world, but it has to be effective first, right? Actually, actually has to accomplish the goal before we can even talk about efficiency, right? Right. Um, not to be too snarky, but maybe to borrow something from our socialist uh, playbook, real capitalism hasn't been tried yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we just haven't tried this specific version of anarcho-capitalism that I have in my head. Uh, no, and, and, and certainly are there policy, fa- right? And this is the other way to talk about it, right? right? Are there policy failures that have pushed us away from those, you know, what, what, the, what the, li- the right liberals would call voluntary institutions, that would have helped implement this without a lot of, you know, explicit government policy. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, that, 
the 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 liberal governments that we've had for the last what 500 years <laughs> are are great. Uh, I'm not saying that they don't make mistakes. They certainly have, but right. th but but the issue is okay. Well, that's th this is the world we live in. You know, I can't. You know, you, you fight with the army you have. I, I can't just pretend that we can have, uh, you know, an economy that we don't have. Right, and, and it's much easier to change, you know, a government and its economy to another to the same government with another form of economy than to completely abolish both. Um, you know, if we're just even right. speaking from a practical matter. Uh, now, another thing that's fairly interesting is um, maybe a distributivist critique of socialism. Uh, you said that the main argument against socialism was its, you know, kind of attack on the family. Why is, you know, the family so such a hostile a thing to the socialist order? Yeah. So I, well, I would, what I would say is that I, I think that the, the socialists today mm -hmm. are the, the, the main reason they go astray in such an, in such an egregious way is, is because of how they understand the family. Right. So it's not, it's not socialism's main problem. Socialism's main problem is that, um, is that it doesn't respect private property appropriately. Mm -hmm. Um, and so again, this goes back to Pope Leo, um, and, and later on with, um, with quadragesimo anno, the 40th anniversary of rerum novarum, mm -hmm. um, you know, we get a lot more of this discussion. You know, this is when socialism is really picking up steam. Um, it's it's that uh, private property ha must be respected, and it is very important that it exist and that it be respected. Um, but it is not limitless. Okay, right. and what Pope John Paul II tells us. Um, and I believe solicitudo rei socialis, and I, I'm not a Latin guy. I don't know. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not. You tell me. Um, but um, yeah, I'm not. Uh, right. So he he says, you know, that the the right of private property is under a social mortgage. Right. This is what he calls it. Um, and so this is where we get this idea of the common good. Right. We when we uh, the the state has a legitimate um, authority to. Uh, enact policy that pushes the economy in uh, uh, towards the common good, which, and again, the common good as defined by the Catholic church, of course. Um, and so it, it, the socialists will hide their, uh, their, their liberal policy views and all the stuff in that language, in the language of the common good. Um, and they will focus on the limitations on private property and they'll do the stupid Marxist thing where they, they say, Oh, you can have personal property, but not private property or whatever. Um, so, but this is all ridiculous. This is a farce. Um, again, the, the whole idea behind a cooperative is that you own a stake in the cooperative, right? If, if you're a farmer and you are part of a co-op you know, up there in Canada somewhere. Um, and you know, I don't know, I don't know what you, what you guys farm like seeds. Or, uh, we, well, we call it, we call it uh, canola. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the other name cause I don't want to, I don't want to have a recording of me saying that word on, <laughs> on the internet, but uh, you know, so you're a canola farmer, right? Well, there's some kind of processing we have to do with that canola. Well, so you and a hundred of your best friend farmers all come together and say, why don't we pool our money so that we can process this canola ourselves and not have to worry about uh, the, the market power of some corporation that's going to buy all that canola and process it for us. Right. So 
Mm-hmm. You know, again, the whole existence of this cooperative is predicated on your ownership of your business and right. your control rights mm-hmm. over the cooperative. Right. So that- there, this is not a socialist thing. Okay. And, and a socialist who says, oh yeah, we, we like cooperatives too. Right. How do you do fellow socialists? <laughs> no, yeah. it's totally absurd. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe that when you spend, you know, the first, ha- like most of the 20th century uh, advocating for one huge central planner <laughs> now, now, oh, now we're, you know, coming up with this whole cooperative thing. Yeah. yeah I, I think <laughs> it, it's super ad hoc ish now. Yes. Um, now how about, um, the uh, the capitalist attack on the family now well one area that I kind of see it is in is abortion because on the one hand you have uh, you know rich uh, you know and I'm just going to borrow some socially progressive jargon so please bear with me so on the one hand we have rich white cis head capitalist uh, uh, males who of course these guys are CEOs they're in charge of the boardroom but at the same time uh, most of these people usually I usually are pro-choice or sorry pro-abortion, right. and I think I could see a few reasons why. On the one Abortion hand, phenomenon, right? Yeah. On, on the on the one hand, you have um, you have less people on welfare because you have uh, less people you have to support with your tax dollars. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, if you have women who are participating in the marketplace, that means you have more people in the labor pool, and that means you have more people to choose from to hire. So that's another benefit that's added. Mm-hmm. And third, you know, more immoral reasons is who doesn't like, uh, you know, consequence free sex. Um, so, sure. yeah. So would uh, there be, yeah, with capitalism, doesn't there seem to be like an incentive for socially immoral behavior like ab- abortion as uh, I, I hope I could, I was validly explaining there. Yeah. I mean, I, I see where you're coming from and uh, I agree but, but I think the fundamental uh, aspect of this is individualism. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why, uh, you know, abortion is a, is a, a liberal sacrament, right? Uh-huh. Uh, is because it's all in service to, you know, the, 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 one, the person who is there, who, who is uh, inconvenienced by the life of another person. Right. Um, and that inconvenience can just simply be wiped from the face of the earth because, uh, you know, because we're all individuals. Um yeah. And, and what's interesting is, again, I think this is a, a, a common thread. I mean, I'm no philosopher or whatever, but I think it's a common thread between the right liberal and the left liberal, right? It's just that the way that that plays out in their attitudes um, is very different. And even if you have someone who is, uh, you know, like I say, here in the U.S., right, a garden variety Republican who is going to be... Um, you know, at least nominally anti-abortion, right? Even though they're probably in favor of uh, birth control use and that sort of thing. Um, where I think, uh, where I think you, you, it's another place where you can see this break is um, this idea of a duty to a family, right? You have a duty to your family, you have a duty to your nation. Um, and, you know, maybe my grandparents, I'm in my mid thirties, my grandparents might've understood that very well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when they were boomers, right, like, a, well, or greatest gen, kind of on the edge, um, you know, and then my my boomer parents, uh, you know, would 
start to be moving away from that, right? right. You get Gen X and they're really moving away from it. Mm-hmm. And then you have millennials like me and we're way you know, like, what, like duty to what? Like, I'm just going to do what I want, you know? Um, and it's part of this, you know, you can, you can see this in like sort of the mold bug, uh, you know, inner and outer party discussion, right? right. Where, where the left is always kind of pushing the boundary. And then you have the, you know, uh, like Ben Shapiro, right. Who's, who's, uh, who's conservative today, but he just has the opinions that liberals had 15 years ago. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and again, those are the right liberals that you know, Ben Shapiro doesn't have much in common with me, <laughs> you know, um, because all he does is just take whatever opinions that, uh, you know, Barack Obama had in 2008 and that's what he believes. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay, folks. So let's go. On. Sorry. Uh, I, that was my attempt at a Ben Shapiro accent. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long since I've listened to his podcast. I don't even remember what he sounds like. Uh, <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> All right. yeah. uh, so, now, what are some poli- so what would can you give us some examples of what uh, public policies you would be in favor of trying to implement, um, um, which are informed by Pope Leo's Rerum Novarum or or his other works? By the way, Leonine Institute, uh, Pope Leo. Yeah. So, and you, yeah. you didn't catch that reference. Um, so, uh, aside yeah. from the living wage example, what else would you kind sure. of invoke? Yeah, so we uh, our most recent uh, kind of. Um, research type publication that we've that we've put out uh, was a it was kind of trying to dig into what what the internet <laughs> thinks about um, uh, about usury and and interest and and the reason we're referring to the internet is because you know the internet's really the place where these discussions are happening right. uh, you know the halls of academia nobody's really talking about usury that much so um, so we go to the Zippy, the Zippy blog, right? And rest in peace, Zippy. Uh, but you know, he's he's he had maintained this massive FAQ on usury, um, and has all kinds of citations. and And so what we do is we try to dig into those same kinds of uh, citations and try to understand uh, the issues. So if you go to LeoInstitute.org and then go over to policy papers, you can read our piece on usury um, if you want to. Um, I would say uh, number one and, and perhaps most destructive from a GDP standpoint um, and from a, the standpoint of uh, sort of upending the, uh, the table of money changers kind of thing would be a, a strict ban on usury. Um, and, you know, you would have to have a way to sort of unwind this or something. Obviously, there's all these, you know, you got to you got to you got to sunset it or whatever. Right. Um, just so you don't completely uh, kill everything. Although, I mean, I don't know. You got to push a button. You got to push a button. That's fine too, right? Push the button, turn it off. Uh, you know. So, but then, then you, then the question is, you know, where does all that property go? But um, we, we, I think we do a, a good job of, on the one hand, sort of understanding um, what a lot of people get right in, in these days when we're talking about usury, what they get wrong, and the, the sort of a, a good definition of it based on. Uh, medieval um, policies, medieval philosophy, and and the church's uh, declarations on this issue. Um, unfortunately, the church hasn't had as much to say about usury in a very long time. Um, but I, I think this is fundamental to trying to get us to a place where we can have um, 
uh, you know, a humane economy. And I mean, we, we don't even, we wouldn't even know where to start. Right. I mean, when, when you start right. contemplating this, you're like, well, how am I going to, I mean, how am I going to have a house, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, I, just basic stuff, you know, how, how, how is capital going to get allocated in a macro economy? Right. Right. Um, and actually, here's a, an interesting question for you. Um, in terms of usury, um, what would you think of many of the um, Islamic styles of banking that have been implemented in the Middle East that have tried to get around uh, specific usury issues? Because uh, like the Catholic faith, a lot of sects of Islam actually do agree with us, as well as uh, Orthodox sure. Jewish communities, but they just limit the anti-usury stuff uh, to one another, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I think that's, uh, I think that they're that they're right about that. Um, and y- the funny thing is, is that the, comp- you know, I, I haven't done a ton of reading on this, mm-hmm. but the <laughs> what's so funny is you, know, the critique from sort of the right liberal folks is, oh well, yeah, but but really, you know, they 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 just take some kind of nominal stake in the business and then and then that allows them to get around it, right? Because if you don't if you if you own a part of the business, then technically you're not a lender, right? You're you're an owner. Mm-hmm. Right. And this this is one of the things we explain in the paper. And and if you're if you're kind of like a basic finance, like if you understand if you had a finance 101, you understand what I'm saying. But um yeah. And, and so the, they complain like, oh, well, this is this is really just, you know, this isn't any different than lending. And it's like, yeah, it is, because that's literally the difference. <laughs> literally, the difference is, do you own part of the business in which you are investing or do you not? Right. That's it. <laughs> and OK, ownership comes with all these other things like control rights and stuff. But heck, I mean, we give that up 90 percent of the time. Right. If you've got a you've got a 401k or whatever for, uh, I guess, I don't know what it is in Canada, but you know, you've got a retirement account, right? You own a bunch of stock in these companies, you know, sort of secondhand, but you don't have any control over it. Well, so what? You still own it, right? You're still getting paid the dividends. So, you know, on paper, you still own it. So fine. You know, now, you know, and these people are, they're trying to do things, you know, in the real world today. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, but again, that, that to me, that's a fantastic way of doing it. If you want to invest in something, fine, buy in, mm-hmm. right? Don't lend money. Just buy in and take the risk. Inshallah. All right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, but far be it from me to declare that I'm a Muslim, but you know, no, no, I get no. that right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as an Arab Christian, uh, I yeah, like right. using the Arabic words. Despite oh, there you go. go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I just know English, so I'm you know. I'm useless. On that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean to be fair, everyone has, everyone else has to learn English, it, given America's dominance yep. in the world. So right. uh, you're you're all good, King. All right. <laughs> it's now, unfortunate we don't force them to use the imperial uh, measurement system, though. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. hate uh, the matrix system. It's just. Uh, you want to hear a dirty little secret? In Canada, we only use the metric system for like half of our stuff. Like mm-hmm. if you told if you ask me how much am I in centimeters, I have to think about that. I <laughs> I just know I'm six two. Like right. I know th- I know my weight in Whoa. the um, yeah That's I know my weight <laughs> exactly. I know my height in the imp- in the imperial system. I know my mm-hmm. weight in the imperial system. Um, yeah. However, when it comes to uh, driving by uh, miles versus kilometers, I'm mm-hmm. I use kilometers. And like 
in uh, Canada and even some other places in the world, we actually have quite a mix of both of them. Yeah. And even in and even Great Britain, for example, you don't order uh, a liter; you order a pint. So right, yep, yeah. they're still vestiges of the old, exactly the, the pre pre revolutionary uh, measurement system, right? Exactly. I mean, exactly. it's a it's an interesting example too. I uh, I once spent some time in Uruguay, and we were having a tour when we first got there, and so we were being told that you know uh, uh, most of your day to day transactions are going to happen in. Uruguayan pesos. Right. But if you buy a car or you buy a house, you make a big purchase, it's going to be in U S dollars. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's kind of the same sort of thing. Like you're saying there with, with uh, wonderful Canada. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny just how vestiges of the old culture still remain. And um, um, although one other thing I need to ask is how does one go from um, how does one, implement distributive ideas in their day-to-day lives. I get that there's a huge economic uh, com- uh, component to it, but like even in terms of like your attitude about, well, not judging or, you know, not being the internet guy who says that you're sinning because you're doing stuff, which I, th- <laughs> I think we need more of in the uh, Catholic right. world right now, yeah. especially online. Obey um, the bishop. Yeah. Obey the bishop. Yeah. What would you say, um, what, what would you say we should do um, you know, in terms of taking these just general ideas and applying it into our own lives. Yeah. So I mean, uh, outside of policy, which I think is what you mean by economics, right? Um, outside of policy, you know, which you and I can't really necessarily affect uh, individually on our own, right? Um, uh, well, uh, one example is the use of uh, use cooperatives as much as you can, right? So patronize a cooperative. If you have a grocery store that's an employee cooperative. Um, you'd be surprised how many businesses are cooperatives. I think uh, the example is um, Ace Hardware, for instance, is a cooperative. I don't know if you have Ace Hardware in Canada, but um, Ace Hardwares are all over the place in the U.S. And essentially what it is, is you have, you know, you, John, you own your little shop that sells hammers and uh, tape measures and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And you, uh, as that entity, that, 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 that business, owns a stake in a larger cooperative that essentially buys all of your uh, retail items in a much larger bulk than you specifically at your business could have done otherwise. Right. Right. So we call this a supply cooperative. I did, I did my dissertation work on cooperatives. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of plugged into the cooperative thing. Uh, So there are lots of examples like that. Um, I would say, uh, supporting local business to the extent that you can. Right. And I, and I understand, I mean, people get frustrated because, you know, they're like, Hey man, you know, I'm a day laborer. I don't have a lot of money and I can't, I can't, you know, I have to, I have to buy stuff from Jeff Bezos. You know, mm-hmm. I have to buy things from Walmart. You know, I have to go to Walmart to get my groceries. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's okay, man. Just that if that's what you have to do, I mean, you, your duty to your family is much higher than your duty uh, or is higher than your duty to, you know, your uh, uh, extended community that you live in. Right. Right. And so you have to do what you have to do. But to the extent that you can. Right. Uh, and, and and being wise about how you do it, patronize those those com- those businesses that are closer to you um, and, and uh, try to do that. I think uh, one example with banking is a credit union. So. Uh, a credit union is a cooperative in the sense that um, everyone who uh, has an account there is also an owner of the business. Uh, 
Right. Um, and the benefits. So the, in, in, in the U S cooperatives are supposed to have some kind of like underlying tie. So, you know, you might have, um, a, I live in a town called Ottawa, which is not the one in Canada, which everybody thinks it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, we might have the Ottawa credit union, right? Well, right. everybody, you know, everybody in the, at the Ottawa credit union has to live in, you know, Ottawa. So, um, but, and you'll see this if you ever, if you ever get a loan from a credit union, they will automatically put $5 in a, in a bank account for you because you have to have money in that, in that credit union. You have to be a member of the credit union, which means you're an owner. Um, and you'll get statements from, you know, on that $5 account. Hey, here's, here's your ownership in the company. Right. <laughs> um, so that's, that's another thing to do is, you know, when you're going about your life doing your, uh, your banking and stuff like that, find, find a credit union to, to, to sort of manage your funds because, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that, uh, we need to promote more of. And now, I mean, is that going to change the whole wide world? Well, no, unless all of us do it all at once, right? This is why we need policy. Exactly. And um, in terms of, you know, getting that political support right now in the United States, um, mm -hmm. you have two major parties. Both of them seem to be much more united on economic lines um, than mm -hmm. and usually the big distinction is now social policy. How in and in Canada, you know, it's not any better. In fact, I think we just have the Liberal Party and the Liberal Party that kind of likes tax cuts. <laughs> um, that's basically all we have. Right. Even our so our conservative party, our so-called conservative party, uh, for instance, um, the major difference is this: as a member of the Liberal Party, if uh, I send somebody to Parliament, then they have to vote for uh, pro-choice and pro-contraception uh, legislation. If the Conservative Party MP gets elected, uh, they get their choice of whether or not they want to vote for that. <laughs> That, that's it. There's no, the only difference is they don't get to be whipped into it and they right. can just yeah. not refuse to vote out of conscience. Right. That's the only difference between the two parties. Like when you, when you have that kind of political gridlock, how do we uh, affect this kind of policy? Yeah. So I, I think, um, well, understanding one of the fundamental tenets of distributor of, of Catholic social teaching, um, subsidiarity, uh, which is the idea that, um, any any given uh, social issue should be handled at the most local or the smallest political level that it possibly can be, mm -hmm. or, or that's appropriate for it, right? So, um, but but the preference is to be given to smaller or or uh, uh, more local political units, um, and and of course the fundamental political unit is the family, right? Uh, right. Father and the mother and the children, right? The extended family, right? The grandparents and all of that. So um, to the extent that uh, you are able to affect your sphere, right? Whether that's the, the, the I mean, we have a lot of things that are handled in our states or in our counties or mm -hmm. in our towns. There are things that are handled that way. We have schools, we have, uh, you know, state level laws. I mean, murder is a state level law, right? Um, we have, um, to, you know, to some extent we have welfare policies, we have unemployment. The unemployment system in the U.S. is state-based. Right now, does it get a lot of money from the feds? Sure, just like the schools, but the control largely is is handled at at the lower level. So, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing of oh, well, actually, the Constitution is subsidiarity. No, it's not. <laughs> um, but 
there are things we can do in our daily lives, but at the same time, if, if we are, um, if, if we have an avocation to uh, some kind of political office, or um, if you want to jump into the world of um, think tankery and trying to influence policy by uh, making connections uh, with people in the federal government and stuff like that, uh, there are ways to do that. And there are people who will knock on your doors if you're making enough noise about uh, these policy issues. I think the opportunities that we have uh, under the Biden administration are uh, on, on, on very important issues are constrained uh, relative to uh, the previous administration. But I'm hopeful that uh, we can make some leeway on some of these things and, and we can uh, push in the right direction. And maybe, you know, sometimes there, it's going to go the wrong way. I mean, the $15 minimum wage to me is just absolutely uh, a horror show for anyone who has a small business. I mean, what a nightmare. What a disaster. Um, and it's, it's not going to advance any kind of economic justice whatsoever. Um, but I would say, you know, part of it, too, is taking back these terms. You know, we've got to play the long game. And, right. and part of that is just, you know, uh, at the Leonine Institute, uh, we have a quarterly magazine. I think it's a little bit late right now uh, for the second issue, but uh, we have a quarterly magazine that is uh, 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 it's called Social Justice Quarterly, right? And we're so we're trying to we're trying to reclaim this term that was started by the Catholic Church. This is our term, right? And now Mark the academics have stolen it. Uh, no, we're not going to let them do that. Father Coughlin gang, rise up. Yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> he had a magazine back in the day. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, yeah. And, and, and so this is, you know, this is something we, uh, we, we can do, right. We can talk to people. We can, you know, you and I, as, as just normal folks, right. We can read up on this stuff. We can understand the church's social teaching better, right. We can make attempts to, to learn that stuff. And then when we're having conversations with people, we can insert these ideas. Exactly. And by the way, um, for those of you who might want to complain about my use of Father Coughlin, just remember FDR is a widely celebrated American president. And yeah, he was not short on anti-Semitic remarks either. Let's yeah. Eugenics. Like, eugenics. Horrible. Yeah. Horrible stuff. Like, yeah, sometimes, yeah, people, some people have, might have a mixed history, but if we're allowed to celebrate uh, certain people, I think, and, and look past their faults, which might have been common in that era, I think it's only fair to extend that to a man who actually did do his best to fight for the common worker, the laborer, and and this is a man who fought against both communists and capitalists who mm -hmm. tried to uh, yeah. abuse the family. Probably, so, probably part of the reason why he gets so much hate. Uh, if you make enemies on both sides, you're going to have uh, you're going to have a harder time getting a fair shake <laughs> in public exactly. opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for appearing. By the way, are there any uh, channels you'd like to plug? Podcasts sure. you'd like to plug? Uh, yeah. Twitter accounts? Anything, man. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Gab at Catholic Econ, and on Twitter I basically just run it as like as if my face is the podcast emblem. So um, <laughs> I have a weekly show. I, I took a, a very long break late last year, um, uh, partly just because of the the pandemic and all that stuff. And and um, uh, my wife had a miscarriage, and that was, it was the oh. first time she's ever had a miscarriage. So that was really hard on us, and we we had a difficult time getting through all that. So I kind of just like took a break and didn't do anything. Thanks, John. I just didn't do anything for a long time in terms of the podcast, not in terms of my job, obviously. But um, 
So uh, yeah, so check out the 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 Catholic Economics podcast. It's on all the the platforms: Spotify, Apple, whatever. Um, and then if you if you're um, if you're so inclined, check out leoinstitute.org. That's the Lenine Institute for Catholic Social Teaching. And uh, our director Anthony Fernandez is uh, you know pushing us to to um, get some good stuff out there. And like I said, I'm I'm a fellow there, and I'm trying to uh, you know do. Um, you know, what, what I can to try to advance, um, you know, people's understanding of the social teaching of the church. And we've got some big things that we're trying to do there. We've got some other things that we're going to be trying to, uh, to build on, you know, we're, we're fledgling right now. And so right. we, you know, appreciate whatever support you can give. If you, if you want to, we have a great lead reading list. If you're, if you're, if you're new to this whole, uh, you know, economics and Catholic social teaching thing, if you go to the about us uh, section, there is a, reading list. It's just a list of books that you can go pick up for cheap um, and, and start to understand um, a lot of the stuff outside of just reading encyclicals, which I also recommend you do. So thank you very much for that. Thanks. Jeff. And All right. Uh, take care. Good night, folks. And God bless. <laughs>